I was recently asked to write an opinion piece for Father's Day on the subject of my relationship with my own father. Now, it's a deeply personal story, uh, but I share it in the hope that it is of encouragement uh, and perhaps illuminating for some of you. It appeared in Quadrant magazine under the heading of The Unrecognised Gift of Good Fathering. And I wrote this. Until the day I left home to get married, I'd hear my father occasionally yell out in the dead of night, Get down, you fool, get down! He was reliving the first light of dawn on the second morning of the Battle of Al Alamein, General Montgomery's great push back against the German General Rommel in North Africa. This was one of only two major battles that Australia was involved in during World War II, and it was the first major setback for Nazi Germany at the hands of the Allies. Dad had insisted on surrendering his officer's commission in the Light Horse at the beginning of the war so that he could fight, as it was known, in the ranks. And he'd only been promoted to acting sergeant and placed in control of three anti-tank guns and their crews in the 2nd, 3rd anti-tank unit of the famous 9th Division just prior to the Battle of Al Alamein. On that fateful morning, having advanced under orders 100 metres overnight, they saw the German tank at the same time as its crew saw them in the first rays of light, and the tank was very close indeed. The Panzer opened fire. Shells started exploding all round. Shrapnel, dirt, noise, chaos and terror must have reigned. It can only have been horrific. A young soldier next to my father panicked and leapt out of the inadequate protection of a shallow trench. My father jumped up to pull him down and they were both hit very badly. A mate of my father's found the tattered and bloodied remains of his shirt that evening when the battle died down. He and a couple of others went to the big field hospital hoping to find him, only to be told that he was in a coma in an oxygen tent and that he wouldn't see the night out. Somehow, he did. He was a very strong man. He was brought back to the property in northwest New South Wales where I still live to recuperate and only return to light duties at the end of the war. He was in a very bad shape personally. His scars remained with him, uh, a shattered leg, a deep rip in the side of his stomach, lead coming to the shoulder through uh, the flesh until the day he died. But there were also the psychological scars. Today we would not only recognise the impact of such trauma, but we'd do a lot more about it. It was not so in those days. There was endless army banter when Dad was with other returned personnel, but he never spoke of his own nightmare, even though he evidently relived it frequently. I have only been able to piece together what really happened from others over many years, bit by bit. It meant, though, that I grew up in the shadow of the horror of war. I'm glad that it gave me a detestation of war and of armed conflict. 
I don't even enjoy violence in films, and I think it springs from the same thing. However, with it, I have to say that I've developed a deep conviction that as the old, ironically Chinese proverb has it, if you wish for peace, you must prepare for war. Australia had not prepared for the conflict that was so obviously boiling in the 1930s. Unlike the extraordinary foresight the founding fathers of the new federation had displayed prior to 1914. That earlier generation was able to secure the Southwest Pacific shortly after the outbreak of that war in 1914 with its powerful new navy in very quick order and then to go on to play a vital role in the whole dreadful conflict. It was not so during the 1940s. Nonetheless, I was always conscious that Dad was seen as something of a hero. It was there in the way that people looked to him and spoke to him and related to him. Yet I'd have to say his actions spoke louder than his words. He'd volunteered for service in May 1940, following Dunkirk, but he would never boast of his exploits, ever. The closest he ever came to it was to note with quite an edge, even a hint of bitterness in his voice. As I left for Canberra as a new, new, young, newly minted MP, and he said, I should never be naive when Australian soldiers were being eulogised, as he'd seen plenty of poor as well as noble behaviour in the heat of battle. And I guess he'd earned the right to make that call. Unfortunately for my father, he was to face yet more trials. Having finally settled down enough after the terrible disruptions to both of their lives caused by the war, war really is a truly terrible thing. My father and mother married a full decade after the time that their friends reckoned they might otherwise have done. They had two children, me and my sister, Jane, but my mother then died of cancer in 1960 after just six years of married life with my father. Even then, Dad's resilience and strength of character pulled him through. However, the loss of my sister in an extraordinary tragedy during a game of family cricket when she was a young teenager really did throw him. The sadness became very deep. A father given more than ever to his own thoughts became perhaps less available to me, at least as I saw it. And I found it hard not to be critical at times of the relief he often seemed to look for from endless cigarettes, and it has to be said in common with a lot of other return diggers, uh, a fondness for, in his case, rum. Like so many children, often encouraged by the emergence of a culture of victimhood that is part and parcel perhaps of our desire to blame others, but which now rages like an out-of-control bushfire, I started to focus on his failings rather than his qualities. To my shame, I think I became unfairly critical of him. Then an unexpected encounter caused me to slowly but surely pull back and look at the whole canvas, the bigger picture. Sitting at my desk in the Deputy Prime Minister's office one day, I was handed an extraordinary letter that my staff realised I'd need to respond to personally. It was neatly handwritten on quality paper and roughly it said, Dear Mr Anderson, I believe you were my first baptismal candidate. If my memory serves me correctly, your parents were country people. 
They were down from the country in Easter of 1957, staying at the holiday resort of Newport Beach. I was at a point in my training at Theological College where it was possible for me to uh, baptise children. The vicar who was going to take the baptism had taken ill and I was sent off at short notice to undertake the task. I baptised the boy, I believe it was you, and committed to praying for him for the rest of my life. The letter went on and it was signed by Len Abbott. I was very keen to meet Len Abbott. I invited him to dinner at Parliament House and we had an extraordinary evening. He talked of my mother and my father, both of whom were capable of lighting up a room, and he asked me to map out my life in detail. He, in fact, was a great listener, and we all appreciate great listeners. Then he said something that really struck me. Indeed, it was quite an epiphany. He said simply and softly, I so admire that generation of men. I asked him to elaborate, and he showed me what I really hadn't seen. He said, consider his circumstances out in the country, isolated, especially in those days, suddenly left without his wife, yet another major life setback after such a terrible war, two very small children to look after and no obvious way to do it while trying to run a demanding farm business, he began. Many fathers would have fostered their children out, thinking not only of the practicalities, but also not believing that they could do it properly. Your father stuck to it and found ways to keep you with him. The idea that Dad might not have kept us with him led me to slowly feel relieved, then delighted, and then thankful that he had. How unattractive the alternatives could have been. And how powerful once seen is the knowledge of genuine commitment and love and smothering out the petty grievances and the misunderstandings. Love indeed covers a multitude of sins. I now see the larger canvas. My father loved me deeply. He provided a safe place for my sister and me to grow up in, both physically and emotionally, despite the challenges. That was foundational for me as a man. He gave me the keys to live well, both personally and professionally. That's not, me, not for me to judge whether or not I've used them well. That's for others particularly those closest to me. But I now realise that the criticisms I made of him were me, in some part, feeling overshadowed by his capabilities. From his fast bowling, he was an outstanding athlete, uh, to his quick humour. He might indeed have been the very man thought of as a soldier by what General Montgomery called the Magnificent Ninth Division. Even General Rommel, from the Africa Corps of the German Army, called those men from the 9th Division immensely big and powerful men who without question represented an elite formation of the British Empire, a fact that was also evident in battle. How could I compete with that? The answer, I couldn't, and I can't. But I can give a word of thanks to God for him. And if I didn't, then let me acknowledge my thanks to my father here. He could have outwardly played the victim, but he didn't. He would have been dismayed by the modern idea of victimhood culture. Despite being the victim of events beyond his control, a madman seeking to burn down civilization in Europe, 
The loss of his wife and then his daughter, he held high his principles of duty and of sacrifice and of commitment to keep on keeping on. Since Len came to see me and helped me to see what my father did for me, I've become a committed advocate for fathering. George Bush Sr., when he was first faced with a rioting America following the death of Rodney King, knew part of what the Western world needs, needed then and needs now, is good fathers. Then President Bush said that Americans had spent perhaps $3 trillion to that point on programs for welfare, drugs, urban violence, but had nothing to show for it. Yet the answer could be right in front of us. As Professor Bruce Robinson from The Fathering Project has explained to me, one of the greatest predictors of how well we turn out as people and how society turns out is the presence of decent fathering. We need to end the silence on this. If we really care about our children and our boys in particular, keep in mind that just one set of worrying statistics, the prison numbers alone tell us how serious their crisis is. We would own a simple truth about the reality, whether it's convenient or not, fathering is of critical importance. You've been listening to John Anderson Op-Ed. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au.